And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining welcome us again today. Welcome to the Intentional Encourager and podcast, another where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to encourage your enlighten, and he encourage. He is the co-founder Positivity Chat every week. He is Karen Markle, who is also a guest and a guest on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And I encourage you to go back and listen to, to that episode with Karen. But every week, he and Karen co-host the Positivity Chat, and it's a great conversation. You can find information on that on LinkedIn. Just search Positivity Chat, and Steve will be telling you more about that. He is also a certified UMAP coach. So again, our good friend Kristen Sherry, another guest on the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that as well. And uh, he, he is just into a lot of things. He talks about confidence and coaches people on confidence. But today we're going to talk encouragement specifically, and that is my good friend, Steve Sullivan, who joins me on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing great, Brian. Thank you for having me on your show. So I hope I can uh, share wisdom today. Well, listen, if, if wisdom is shared, it will be from you because there's not much here that, <laughs> that, that people get wisdom from. It, hey, it, hey, buddy, you need to be more intentional about encouraging yourself. <laughs> oh, I am. I'm just self-deprecating. I, I just, I'm intentional about self-deprecation because, because here's the thing. And Steve, we'll start there because I think it's important because we have so much, so many people in our world that are trying to fit a certain image. They're trying to fit a certain persona. Every picture on Instagram just has to be perfect or every post just has to be because they have an image to uphold and protect. I'm not that way. I, I would rather be self-deprecating and lend to humor than to think that I'm something and I'm not. Because the Bible says that he who thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing deceiveth himself. And so I don't, I don't want to deceive, not only do I, do I not want to deceive myself, but I don't want to deceive others. When you meet people that you come in contact with that have a, an image problem, in other words, they, they may not be portraying who they really are. What's your first piece of advice to them? My first piece of advice is for them to learn about their strengths and focus upon what is right with them so that they can gain confidence in who they are and in their uniqueness. You know, a lot of people who fail to have confidence are caught up in this mode of, I'm not good enough for this. I'm not good enough for that. And when I coach people, I don't want to hear about what they think is wrong with them. Mm -hmm. I want to hear about what is right. And I want to lead them through a UMAP process to understand what is right about them so that they can gain that confidence to live in their power and make themselves, you know, better at public speaking or in meetings at work or on an interview for a new job. Yeah. And that's so important because everybody feels like, and I've been in these situations, you're interviewing for a position, Steve, and you feel like, do I have the right tie on? have the is my shirt is my shirt nice and pressed is my my suit looking good and think how about my shoes what about my hair my teeth everything on the outside 
has to be perfect. But a lot of times you, you, you said that so well, it's the internal deficiencies that end up coming out in a job interview. It's nothing external. It's just that we don't have that confidence in ourselves to be able to go, here's what I know, here's what I can do, and here's what I bring to the table. How hard is it for people to really, for you, how hard is it to coach people to their strengths and not always trying to, to make excuses for their deficiencies? Actually, it's fairly easy. Once they go through the process of identifying their top five strengths and we drill down on what value comes with each of those strengths, then it's easy for me to say to them, tell me about a story that demonstrates that strength. Uh, and for example, they might be an achiever. Achievers are very goal-oriented. And so they might have a, a story around how they set out goals on a weekly, monthly process to complete this project successfully on budget, on time. Now they have a story that they can bring into an interview and impress the interview people that this person knows what they're doing and has value to give to that organization. Mm -hmm. And Steve, I gotta ask you this because there's so many things that draw people to different things that they pursue. Um, our mutual friend, as I mentioned off the top of the broadcast, Kristen Sherry, a marvelous lady. I, I, I love Kristen. She's so good. She's been, she was kind to me and came into my life at a time that I really needed somebody like her. What was it about the UMAP program that intrigued you so much that you said, I've got to be a part of this, but not just be a part of it, but coach the UMAP system? Well, it, the journey there started with actually Lila Smith reaching out to me. She's a UMAP coach. Mm -hmm. She had seen some of my posts on LinkedIn about trying to find a job. And she was a fairly new, I think, coach at that time. And so she sent me a copy of UMAP free of charge and said, Steve, read this and then we'll talk. And so I started to do the what we call DYI process of using the book and working through the assessment. And as I did that and I started to see things and learn things, I realized I had questions around some of it and I needed to talk to people. And so uh, Lila connected me with Lori Knudsen, who's another UMAP coach. And Lori was a great help to me personally in answering some of those questions. And also so, another guest of the Intentional Encourager podcast. Yes, we have a big circle. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so having come to realize the insights that can be gained through the discovery process uh, in terms of what you can do with it and growing at, in your career and also growing in relationships, because a lot of the insights apply not just at work, they apply at home. Uh, and at, at, at that juncture, the idea of becoming a UMAP coach became appealing to me. Christian Cherry reached out to me. I got on board. She was awesome and very generous with her time uh, to get me trained. And so for about a year plus or so, I've been a UMAP coach working with people and helping them understand what's unique about them. Mm-hmm. 
And Steve, that that's the thing is a lot of people don't know what they don't know. It, it's human nature, right? We, we say, well, you know, and I'll give you a good example. I'm working on my first book now. And I thought, okay, I've got it until I got with a coach who does this for a living and said, ah, you, you need to edit that thing. You need to cut it in half. And so I'm in the process of the edit right now. And I'll probably have to do a second edit. But again, you don't know what you don't know. And, and so, you know, for people out there that may hear this conversation, what was it about yourself that you found out in the process of becoming a UMAP certified coach that you, that you went, ah, that's, that's a V8 moment. I didn't realize this about myself. I realized that I was a lot more social than what I, I expected because if you were to go back with me five years and ask, I'd probably tell you I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. But most of the people that know me on LinkedIn probably think of me as an extrovert. And what's coming through is, again, me utilizing my connectedness strength to connect effectively and network with people and bring people together uh, so that as, a, as unique people, they may complement each other and then create a greater success. Mm -hmm. And so that was there, but also in the personal side of it, you know, all of us that are married who've gone through this have seen uh, insights that have helped us out. For example, when I took my wife through it, I found out she's very much a inward facing person. There's strengths that are called inward facing and there's strengths that are called outward facing or people facing them. And my wife is very much the inward facing person. And over our 26 years, numerous times I've tried to get her to go out and network with me. And she's like pulling the teeth. You know, she doesn't want to do it. She fights it. Yeah. And and usually I I, and I have one certain times, and then she says, Yeah, I had a good time. And then my default answer in the future was always, you know, if you come, you're gonna have a good time. Mm -hmm. Well, I realized that that contention was happening because she's not that way. She doesn't want to be out with people where I do. And so we've had to uh, come to a, a place of agreement and acceptance of, okay, I'm going to go do all my LinkedIn meetings and things and, and have, you know, all these great friendships and connections and, and she doesn't mind. And I leave her at home to do what she wants to focus on and, and grow in the ways that she wants to grow. I've got to ask you this because in your background, you have a strong background in healthcare as I do. I've been in the healthcare field for a number of years now. And we are seeing some unusual, unprecedented times for people in the, in the, in the healthcare field with COVID-19 and things like that. My, my, the reason that I'm going here is this, is that the challenges are, are, are either temporary or it seems like they're more permanent. What do you see coming from this pandemic that you think, okay, this may be here for a good while and this may be the new normal? Because what I see is I see 
the way that that people go to the hospital or go to the doctor. They may not be as forthcoming in going to the doctor or going and, and getting something done as they would have been before. What do you see, Steve? It, and, and again, I want to tap into that, that wealth of expertise there that you have. Well, you're, you're also tapping into one of my strengths, with this, which is the context strength. I love history. I love looking at the past to try and figure out how we got to where we are today from the past and what lessons can we learn from that? And the whole idea of are, are we in this permanent state of COVID, I, I don't buy because mm. if you go back to the you know, 18 or 1918 uh, Spanish flu, a lot of the same things happened there with people closing schools with you know, movie theaters closed. There was a shutdown of people hunkered down for pretty much two years. Mm -hmm. But once the virus had run its course, people started to live again. We are social beings naturally. So give us the opportunity to get out and socialize and we will. Um, so I, I see this as a passing thing. You know, one of the things that may occur out of this, and I'm glad to see it, is more of a, a greater appreciation of people who work remotely and understanding that if somebody's working at home, they can actually do a good job from home. It's a great you know, I, I, I actually, long before COVID, um, moved a team of IT people into a work from home relationship. But I got a lot of flack from the organization, from other managers saying, how do you know they're working? You know, there was always this undercurrent of suspicion that they would be goofing off instead of working. Well, I had, I put some KPIs in place. I put some things in place that allowed me to monitor their productivity. And what I saw was an increase in productivity. And oftentimes to these same doubters, I'd say, how do you know your staff are working in their cubes? Mm -hmm. just because they're here. And yeah. And, and Steve, I want to jump in here just a second. Yeah. One of the best lessons that I learned about that, I learned early in my career. So I was 22 when I started in sales. I was just about to turn 23. And I remember one day, I, my boss was an older gentleman. He was easily 30, 35 years older than me, but we had a wonderful relationship. And he looked at me one day and he said, Brian, I don't care if you work from 10 to two every day, as long as you hit your numbers. What he was instilling in me, Steve, was it's production. That's the key. That's the KPI that matters, right? That we, at the end of the day, what we end up producing, whether it takes us eight hours to do it or an hour, it, it, it reminds me of the parable in the Bible of the vineyard where the, where Jesus was teaching and he was telling the story that a man contracted with workers and he said, I will pay you a penny. And he hired some early in the day. He hired some in the middle of the day and he hired some late in the day, but at the end, everybody got the same wage and people were, were, were mad. And the story goes that, the man that ran the vineyard said to them, 
did I not agree with you for a penny? You agreed to work at the time I hired you for, for a penny. It's mine to do with what I want to do with it. And the point being, Steve, is, is whether production happens at eight in the, from eight to noon or from noon to four or from four to 10, some people work better in the evenings. Some people are more productive. Some people are early morning people. I love what you said there because it must have taken, tell me about the, the, the inspiration behind that because that was forward thinking in a time where, you, to your point, a lot of people didn't want to have remote employees. Yeah, the, the truth is it was a practical ramification as the IT team grew, they were looking for space in the data center where my team was at. And so I volunteered to say, hey, I can take my team out of here, have them work from home because they, all they need is access to the servers. Uh, that's their job all day long. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there was some questions and conversations around that. Ultimately, I had to work with HR and set up some agreements that I had each team member sign. Um, I put KPIs in place. I did a lot of things that I probably should have done before I even took them home. <laughs> you know, I probably should have been doing these things for years. And it's just the fact that moving home forced me to think, ah, this is the time to put this in place. So I made changes and uh, it was successful under my leadership, but uh, once I was out of that situation, the new manager that came in, pulled them all back in house. Mm -hmm. Well, Steve, it, it is getting and having the right people on the bus and getting the wrong people off the bus. Because if you, you're going to, to for a quote, you're going to ride or die with those people. Yes. And, and there better be that, that high degree of trust there. Steve, one more question around this, and then we'll pivot to, to telling your story, your, your incredible, wonderful story. But what is, the big, what is the biggest lesson that you have learned right now around this COVID-19 pandemic? That uh, probably, as the Bible says, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, you know, disease comes and goes. What's strange today is we are responding to disease differently than we ever have. Mm -hmm. We've taken some of the lessons that have been learned, like, hey, separate away from sick people so that the sickness doesn't spread, and now have turned it into this everybody's at home all the time and uh, a fear of letting people come back and, and be together again because they may get the disease. Um, but the reality is you'll hear all these things about a vaccine. I personally, again, looking at history, can tell you the fastest vaccine to market took four years. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I'm very skeptical that they're gonna have one out in 21. Um, and by 2022, we will have created the herd immunity in the process. The vaccine 
won't be needed as much. Uh, and it'll become just a part of like the standard flu vaccine that people get every year. That's a great point. And, and Steve, the, the thing that, that has intrigued me about this whole thing, and I'll jump in here with this for a minute, is, and, and you know the products that I'm going to speak on very well from the IT side, but everybody talks about Bill Gates and his, his jumping into this vaccine. And what I've said is I've said, listen, as intelligent as Bill Gates is, he does not know the hurdles he will have to clear with the Food and Drug Administration, with the insurance companies, with providers, medical providers who ha will have to prescribe this vaccine initially. You know, as smart as Bill Gates is, he doesn't know this, this he industry. He hasn't been down that path. Yeah. yeah, he hasn't been down that road. You're you're 100% right. And so... To me, that gives me pause when someone, hey, listen, it's hard enough to get Windows to work consistently, <laughs> let alone that, that he's going to try to develop a vaccine, you know? <laughs> I got you. But, you know, one of my biggest fears is that greed will get in the way of proper testing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're seeing that in Russia as they – claim to have a, a vaccine, which they basically have rushed to the market. And I think their hope is if they can convince other people, they'll sell a bunch of vaccines. Yeah. Um, we need to realize there's a process to develop vaccines that are helpful and not hurtful. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. That's a really good point. Let's, let's transition now to your story because um, and, and again, I want you to take me as far back as you want to take me in your story, because what I have found recording nearly 50 of these podcasts that I've done is that everybody's story is unique, but there are moments in people's lives that just, you, you, they tell the story and, and the hair stands up on the back of my neck because it's like, wow, that's powerful. Take me through your story and start as far back as you want to go and take me through your story. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Now, I often tell people that I'm on my fourth life. And that represents the number of health issues and other things that I've gone through which could have killed me. And I can go back to being a recent uh, college graduate newly married with two little boys, uh, basically the age of 23. And, uh, you know, I heard the three words nobody wants to hear. I heard the three words that no doctor wants to say. You have cancer. Uh, and on that day, it hit me that, you know, I was diagnosed with leukemia. And while I was laying in the hospital bed, I thought, this is it. I'm, I'm going to die. Maybe not today, maybe uh, in two years. But uh, the survival rates for leukemia are not very high. Uh, back when I was diagnosed, it was only about like 22% had a five-year chance to still be alive. Um, 
And so I then quickly turned from that realization to the realization of, hey, I have a wife, and two little boys. Who's going to take care of my wife? Who's going to raise my sons? And they became motivation for me to live as full a life as I could for however long I had. And I mentally came up with this mindset that I call embrace today. And there's three parts to that. One is being aware of the world around you and appreciating it. It might be an act of kindness. It might be a flower next to a sidewalk. It might be a bird singing in a tree. But those uh, opportunities are there for us to hear and gain peace and appreciate something. Mm -hmm. The second thing was to make memories with others, uh, family, friends, because uh, there's in, in every day, you know, I would wake up and wonder if this is my last day. And Steve, let me jump in here because I, I, I've got to ask a, I've really got to ask a follow-up question there. How long did it take you to develop that? Was it something that came to you pretty instantaneously and you said, hey, tomorrow morning, these three things I'm going to be intentional about doing? Or was it more of a process of figuring these three steps out to embracing that, developing that mindset? It happened fairly quickly for me. Uh, certainly during my first hospital stay, which was a total of four weeks. Uh, but once I realized that I only had today, I wanted to make the most of it. And so then I thought about how can I make the most of it? And I realized again, that there's so much beauty around me that I can appreciate that there's people that I can do things with to make memories for today. And uh, in some cases, like with my two little boys, I knew that, that they probably wouldn't remember, but the memories were important to me. They encouraged me and they encouraged uh, my wife. Now, the third thing then is to love those that you care about, to let them know that they are cared for and loved. Because uh, you don't know when, if this will be your last day and so you don't true. want to go out saying, oh, I wish I had called my mom and said, I love you. or I wish I'd done this. And um, uh, loving my family was really critical and brought a lot of strength to me. Uh, and I've, as I've applied this through my life, uh, I had ultimately had four children. Uh, at that time, I had two little boys, and then later I had two, two more children, a, a son and a daughter. And just this last year, my daughter honored me by saying to me, Dad, there's never been a moment when I didn't, when I questioned your love for me. Mm -hmm. Because I try to show that so often, so regularly, that my children, my wife, know that I love them. Wow, that is so good. Did you, let me ask you this, you're 23 years old. 
your doctor tells you you've got leukemia, do you ever wonder why now and not later? Because again, when we're 23 years old and just graduated college and, you know, I know what I was doing. I wasn't, I didn't get married till the next year when I was 24, but you know, if, if I had gotten that kind of news that early in life, certainly I wouldn't know how to process it nearly like I do now at 48. You know, now it's, you've got the wisdom of maturity and you say, okay, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to take tactical steps to do that. I'm going to try to push the emotion back as much. As, but I remember what I was like at 23, I was way more emotional than I was tactical. How did you find a balance and, and, and say to yourself, okay, Steve, this is what we've got to do because it's very tactical to develop the embrace today mindset. Yes. And so how did you tap in to that, to that strategic part of you in battling that disease and developing that mindset? In many ways, I have to give, you know, uh, praise to God and his grace in my life, you know, because I embarked on this journey as a follower and believer of Jesus Christ. And I never really wrestled with the question, why me? Because as I saw things in the world, you know, I came from a medical family, so I was very exposed to disease in the world and different things. I realized, why not me? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it happens to people. Am I special in some way that I shouldn't have it? Uh, no. It rains uh, on the just and the unjust, the Bible says. Yes, exactly. And, and so I didn't struggle with that. So that helped me get beyond that really quickly and, and get to a place of acceptance. I mean, when you can accept something, you can then become practical to take steps. And, you know, to continue on in this story, um, I went through the standard treatment a year, you know, things were looking good. I was classified as remission. A year after that, I relapsed. And when you relapse with leukemia, boy, your, your survival rates take a plummet. Uh, in fact, in the hospital, the doctors told me, Steve, you know, you'll, you'll be fortunate to be alive in a year. You have a less than probably 5% chance to be alive in a year. And, you know, at that time, I just said thank you to them for being honest with me and, and giving me their professional advice. But I also uh, told them, you know, there's no such thing as 5% living. You're either 100% live or you're 100% dead. And right now, I'm 100% live, and I'll stay that way for as long as God wants. He there was my... never a thought in your mind, though, Steve, of, of, of quote-unquote getting your house in order because, again, I would have to think the natural tendency, and I, I wanted to, to pop in there, the natural tendency is you beat it once, and it relapses, and you go, oh, man, is this, is this the one that, you know, it comes back stronger. Is this going to take me out? There was never a thought in your mind of getting your house in order. It was full speed ahead for you, right? 
Not really. There was a sense of, of wisdom saying, hey, I need to be prepared. So getting a will together, getting, you know, powers of attorney ready for my wife uh, so that, you know, the transition and my death to her would be a lot easier financially uh, than if I just pass away. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are practical elements of getting your house in order that you can do out of wisdom, whether you're battling cancer or not battling cancer. Some of us just put it off longer than others because we don't feel any threat. Mm -hmm. but as soon as that threat's there, then yeah, you start taking actions. And I, I certainly did from that standpoint. But, you know, at that time when I got that, the word that I had relapsed, I questioned even going back for treatment. I, I thought, you know, I can go back to treatment. I don't know if it'll work or not. Uh, maybe I'm better off living out my days as best as I can versus, in a sense, rolling the chips on the table and going to the hospital and undergoing treatment that's not exactly fun to undergo. You're, you're taking a gamble in that sense that you're going to, come out of that and maybe have more life. Um, but there is a cost to that. Mm -hmm. And it was, Brian, it was only through prayer and, and a sense that God told me, go get this treatment. Wow. And wow. so then I called up my doctor. We went off to the hospital and um, they gave me a, a new chemotherapy, which was stronger and harder. Um, and I came out of that, uh, in remission after one treatment. And at that time they were encouraging me to go do a bone marrow transplant. Uh, that's pretty standard today to say, go do a bone marrow transplant. Uh, back then the only options I had for me was either an autologous, uh, transplant where they take your bone marrow out zap your body maybe with radiation and kill everything, so to speak, and then put your bone marrow back in. Uh, the pros of it is you don't have any rejection of the bone marrow because it's your bone marrow. The cons of it are because it's your bone marrow and that's where the disease is at, you may get the disease again. And you're and, stripping, if I understand it correctly, Steve, you're basically stripping your body down to almost zero. They, they kill it off in, in, a, in a transplant standpoint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you're, you're banking on the fact that getting the good marrow back in there is going to jumpstart everything and, and kind of level set. Is that, is that the... That's the process. And if it's, if it's your marrow, it, it happens. You know, you're, you're, it, there's not going to be any bone marrow uh, rejection. So you don't, you don't have that situation. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, being from a medical family, my father had access to medical libraries. There was no Google back then. So I couldn't Google up and say, let me know about the studies related to leukemia. He pulled them. I read them. And as I read them, I saw that autologous treatments often became a multiple bone marrow transplant process. Mm. 
people would relapse and they'd have another one, another one. And within 36 months, they typically were dead. Um, autologous works great for things like women battling breast cancer, but it, for leukemia, that's a different story. Um, the other option I had to me for me was siblings. I had to I have an older sister and she was tested for compatibility. And back then they looked at five markers in the blood for compatibility. Uh, today they look at uh, a minimum of six to eight, um, but she matched on three of the five. So they called her a secondary match. And I talked to the experts about that and they were like, yeah, come to us, we'll help you. You know, it's your only chance, take it. But as I researched the probabilities of bone marrow rejection, I saw that it was high. And then as I read about bone marrow, you know, rejection and what people go through, I mean, their bodies just go into a, a like inflamed. There's a lot of pain and suffering before they pass. Um, so that wasn't exactly a exciting uh, course to try and take. And ultimately, you know, God giving me grace and kind of taking my own, being my own advocate in the situation, I decided to ask the expert. I had two experts, one an autologist, one a secondary match. I asked the autologist doctor what he thought of the secondary match. And he told me he wouldn't do it that the bone marrow rejection was too high. Mm -hmm. So then I talked to the secondary match guy and I said, what do you think of an autologous transplant? And he said, I wouldn't do it because you're probably going to relapse. Wow. So here you're, you're trying to get the best answer and, and, and nobody's giving you a good solid answer, Steve. They're, but they're giving me the answers that I saw in the research. So they confirmed for me what I was able to find out on my own. And so then I told my doctor, or I went back to my doctor and asked him, you know, if I go through this bone marrow transplant and survive five years, which are you going to point to, the bone marrow transplant or the chemotherapy that got me into remission before the bone marrow transplant? Because they want you in remission before they do a transplant. And he said, they didn't know. All I knew is that chemotherapy had a, a small chance of success. Steve, so, how, how much input and wisdom did you seek from your dad? Because you mentioned that your dad had a strong medical background. Were, were you leaning on him pretty heavy? Was he, was he, were you guys having these conversations and, and he would say, Hey, I, I found this and this may be something to consider. How important was your dad through this process? My dad was very supportive. He did not, through the process, it was pretty much me coming to my own conclusions. My dad didn't try and influence my conclusions. He just tried to be a support from the standpoint of what more information could he gather to give to me? because he knew it was ultimately my decision to make. And uh, they supported me in 
in the decision I made. You know, they saw how I logically came to the conclusion I did and, and chose not to go forward with the bone marrow transplant to rest on the last treatment for remission. And I'm still alive today, 30 years later. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you look at from hindsight, people could say, well, you made the right decision. The reality is during that period of time, when I made that decision, I had to come to terms with the fact that I was willing to make that decision, right or wrong, life or death, and stand by that decision. And sometimes, you know, in business, we have to make those decisions that force us, right or wrong, to go forward and maybe we gain success or maybe we actually fail. But um, you can't be afraid to make that decision. And by God's grace, I wasn't. What was the greatest lesson that cancer taught you or leukemia taught you about yourself? Because the reason I ask that question is, is that obstacles in life leave lessons because we, and we talked about the value of history earlier. Yeah. Those and obstacles leave lessons that we can go back and glean from. What did cancer teach you? Primarily, again, that first lesson of embrace today, because uh, by just learning to live fully for one day, I became convinced that I would rather live one day than a thousand so-so days. So if I could live fully for one day, that was good enough, whether I got another day or not. Uh, so coming to that mindset was a big help. And then again, as I just mentioned in the story, becoming my own advocate. You know, I often talk to patients and say, be your own advocate. Uh, understand your disease, interact with your physician, be a part of the decision-making process with them. And, and so that's, that's life, you know, when we're working with people, we need to be a part of the decision-making process and not be afraid to voice our opinion and, you know, give our thoughts on a situation. Uh, you know, those are two of the, the primary ones. There were definitely others through the, the cancer treatment but like you said, every difficult thing I've been through, I can look back and be thankful for because it taught me lessons that I would not have learned otherwise. Mm -hmm. The only way to learn those lessons was for God to take me through that. And so he, he put me in a very unique school, not one that I would encourage too many people to follow my footsteps. Yeah, you can't buy the you can't buy a t-shirt that says alumni of this school of cancer, you know, yeah. life, yeah, or school of cancer, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but again, every rough situation that we go through as individuals, if you're looking for what you can learn from it, mm -hmm. eventually you'll find lessons that you can be thankful and say, I'm thankful for this hurt, this damage, whatever it was, 
because without it, I would not have learned these valuable lessons. Yeah. And, and Steve, that's the thing is, is that in life, God takes us through things not to punish us, but to teach us. And then, and what I've learned is this, you know, in walking a road of losing my dad real suddenly, almost eight years ago, mm-hmm. you know, walking through a job loss three years ago, that was just immediate and sudden. You know, what I learned was the things that I gleaned from it. I'm able to help somebody else. Yes. I'm able to, to, you know, when somebody goes through that and people have gone through that, I'm able to help them through that. Steve, was there another obstacle that you overcame in life that you learned another powerful lesson from? Because it would be enough for me to park on it and say, okay, this is how Steve overcame cancer. I've got a sense that there's another lesson and there's, another there, obstacle. There that, are more, there are more lessons learned. Uh, certainly one of them that came out of the cancer situation was basically the destruction of my family. Hmm. You know, I wanted to survive for my family. Yet my wife at that time heard what the doctor said, prepare for his death. She sought support elsewhere and unfortunately ended up in an inappropriate relationship, which ultimately led to the demise of our marriage and our family. And I, that put me into the darkest part that I've ever been in my life, Brian. Um, you know, cancer, cancer is like a, of the flesh, but the mind, the pains of the heart and the mind are, are a lot more difficult to deal with. And, you know, during that period, I found myself wrestling with dark thoughts. It was like all these dark thoughts were coming into my mind, you know, things like to kill myself, to kill him, to kill her, or go out and get drunk and try and wash away my problems. All of those thoughts came to me. I didn't act on any of them, but it was an it was a battle of spiritual warfare from a Christian standpoint and God swept it aside, Brian. I was in church one day and the pastor, he knew about my life, my situation. He visited me in the hospital and he was talking about the time when saw cornered David in the cave Mm -hmm. and David snuck up, cut off a little piece of his, Road, and then when Saul left, he went out and said, "Hey, I'm here, and and I could have killed you, but I didn't." Uh, basically, and Saul repented. David continued to live on. And and the powerful part of that is too. I want to add some clarity to that. Not only did Saul repent, but David also basically warned the men that were with him and said, Saul is the anointed of God. Do not, if, if, if any of you touch the anointed of God, you, something bad's going to happen to you. Even though Saul was trying to kill David, David still respected the anointing that God had placed on him. He still respected that. 
and mm-hmm. threatened anybody that, that would come near it. So, yeah, that showed not only David's grace in that situation, but his his understanding that if if I would have carried this out, there would have been far worse that would have come upon me. Exactly. Now, in terms of the sermon, the guy was drawing, his point that he was drawing from that was that God was not done with David, that he still had plans for David. Mm-hmm. That's a great point, Steve. And as he made that point, he turned in the crowd, he looked at me and he pointed and he said, Steve, I know that God is not done with you yet. I've never had that happen in, in my life except that one time. But as soon as he pronounced that, those dark thoughts were just blown aside. They were gone. And I went forward out of that. And one of the power, most powerful lessons I learned from that is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much animosity as I could have had for my wife, uh, for her betrayal and all the hurt that was there. Because she was like my helpmate through all my sickness. She was there nursing me, taking care of me. We had a, a great relationship. And then, boom, it's gone. Mm-hmm. I realized that the path to healing was through forgiveness. And as I came to the point of forgiving her, now forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is accepting what was done, acknowledging your pain, and then choosing to pardon that person. And once I did that, that freed me up to look forward and to start taking steps forward instead of being caught up in this endless current negativity that was going on in my life. Mm-hmm. Wow. That, that is so, that's so powerful because, you know, you're walking through this terrible health situation, which, which alone is its own obstacle. And now to, to for, for a West Virginia term, you add gas to the fire. And then realizing that both situations can be taken care of through forgiveness. That, that's powerful. That is so powerful. As you, I, man, I've got to, I've got to go here. I, I can't what? leave it because it'd be so easy to go, well, let's move to the, to, to the last thing. I can't do it because Steve, when you think back now, almost 30 years later, if you had a chance now to minister to Steve Sullivan, then what would you have said to him? How would you have put your arm around him and encouraged him? That's an excellent question. And what I would do is what I tell people to do today is to be there in presence. Because a lot of people tried to minister to me during that time. And I can tell you all the trite things I heard. I remember getting a book that said something like, you know, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And I immediately threw it in the trash. Like, (laughs) 
this guy obviously has not been through cancer. He doesn't know what really tough things are in life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as I came through that, I realized the times that had the greatest impact are when people would just come and sit. They wouldn't say anything. They would just say, I'm going to be there in presence to let you know that you're not alone and that you're cared for. And if I felt like it, I might talk to them. If I didn't feel like it, because oftentimes as a cancer person, you're so sick, you don't feel like talking. And the worst thing you can do is visit somebody in that state and try and force them to talk. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is you can visit that person and just sit there and hold their hand or put your arm around them and in silence share the moment and presence. Wow. That is so good. Steve, we we could go for hours yeah, um, telling you your, half my story. <laughs> telling your story. Well we, we need to do another intentional encourager podcast for for the other part of your story yeah. because it's um, I don't feel like we've we've scratched the surface and I want to be respectful of your time and the audience's time. Mm -hmm. But Steve, take me through your biggest piece of intentional encouragement right now for folks e either walking through a health scare. You've been there walking through a man. I don't know how much longer I can continue to work from home. You've been there tapping into your shirt. You, you, you can, you can really hit a lot of areas. I believe that people are walking through right now. What's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement? It comes back to the idea to embrace today. Don't worry about tomorrow and all those things. Those are fears that steal joy. But if you can stop and enjoy the moment, if you can make a memory and enjoy making that memory, if you can hug your child and enjoy hugging your child, that can bring so much more meaning to your life, whether you're here another 30 years like me or you're gone in a week. Um, so I would, would definitely encourage people on those lines for sure. Wow. Steve Sullivan, this has been incredible conversation and I'm, I'm grateful not only for our friendship, but I'm grateful that, that you chose this platform to share your story because um, I had an idea when we got started with this podcast and uh, you've taken us to some different areas, but I'm grateful. Um, go to Steve's, um, go to his website. It's stephenlsullivan.fyi.to forward slash Stephen dash Sullivan. I'll put that in the, the show notes. Find him on LinkedIn at Steve Sullivan. Also check out their YouTube channel with the positivity chat that again, that he and Karen Markle do, and they do such an incredible job. Steve, again, we need to do this again sometime. We will do another intentional encourager podcast to continue the story, but you have been so gracious with your time today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for joining us today on the intentional encourager podcast. You're welcome, Brian, and thank you for having me as a guest. I always enjoy interacting with hosts and with their audiences. Even guys like me. 
<laughs> yeah, even guys like you and me. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Steve. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meads. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day of his word. And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place can be an intentional.